hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. You're listening to Soonish. I'm Wade Rausch. So it's Saturday, February 26th, 2022, and I just got back from a long walk with my dog Griffin around the Charles River in Boston. There's a bunch of snow on the ground from a storm yesterday, and today is one of those severe clear days that can follow a big blizzard. It's so gorgeous outside that it's hard to keep in mind just how desperate things are in other parts of the world. It's day three of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and it's day 700 and something of the coronavirus pandemic. And it feels like history just won't stop shifting right under our feet. So in a way, it's an odd day to be sharing a podcast about something as arguably frivolous as Lego bricks. But hey, life goes on, right? If we lost sight of the importance of play, then we'd be letting the monsters win. So, what I have for you today is part three of The Persistent Innovators. It's a mini-series I've been guest producing and guest hosting for another podcast called Innovation Answered from the Boston-based company InnoLead. And yeah, this one is all about Lego. The family-owned company from Denmark feels just as omnipresent as Apple and Disney, the other two companies we've covered so far in this mini-series. And clearly, Lego is way more than just a system of plastic bricks. It's a huge global brand with hundreds of retail stores and 10 theme parks and a franchise of blockbuster movies. And Lego is not just for kids. Right here at home, I've got a Lego Saturn V rocket made from 1,969 pieces and a Lego Space Shuttle Discovery with 2,354 pieces. I also have a journalist friend named Maya Weinstock who designed a super cool Lego kit called Women of NASA It came out in 2017, and it features minifigures of Nancy Grace Roman, Katherine Johnson, Margaret Hamilton, Sally Ride, and Mae Jemison. So, as the LEGO fan community grows, and as LEGO itself enters its 10th decade, it's hard to imagine a world that's not littered with billions of colorful plastic LEGO bricks. But what most people don't realize is that less than two decades ago, in 2003, the company came really close to going out of business. The point of this persistent innovators miniseries is to understand how certain companies stay successful, way past the age when you might expect them to stop innovating. But Lego's challenge back in 2003 wasn't a lack of innovation. In a way, it was too much innovation. And how it got a handle on that problem and bounced back from its near-death experience is the story you're about to hear. So, here's the full version including ads and everything, of Innovation Answered, Season 6, Episode 4. What makes LEGO a persistent innovator? Hi, I'm Kristen Krasinskis from InnoLead. If you work inside a large organization in any kind of innovation-related job, whether you're in R&D, design, emerging technology, or new product development, I'd love to invite you to learn more about the resources we provide. We can connect you to a network of peers and make sure you have the data, templates, and case studies you need to succeed. You can find out more and sign up for our email newsletter at inolead.com. 
Now on to the show. Hello, and welcome to The Persistent Innovators, a special mini-series from Innovation Answered, InnoLead's podcast for corporate changemakers. I'm Wade Rausch. I'm your guest host for the mini-series. Now, here's a sound you may recognize. I'll give you one guess about what it is. Okay, that, of course, is the clatter made by a few thousand Lego bricks when your kids dump them all over the living room floor. And that is the Lego ouch, which is the sound that you make a week later when you accidentally step on one of those bricks with your bare feet. Today, in the third episode of the miniseries, we're going to talk about the Lego Group, the toy maker that got its start 90 years ago in a tiny town in Denmark and managed to grow into one of the world's most famous brands. I wanted to start with the sound of Legos because any truthful story about the company has to begin and end with the actual bricks. There's a magic to the, to the brick itself. That's Bill Breen. He's a business journalist, and he was a founding team member at Fast Company magazine. So when you look at it, it's just the like eight little knobs on the top and the three little hollows uh, tubes underneath it. <laughs> you pick up a single brick, it's inanimate, it's lifeless, there's nothing to it. But you click two of those things together and a lot of possibilities open up. Back in 2012, Breen and a University of Pennsylvania business scholar named David Robertson co-wrote what is hands down the best book about Lego and its history. It's called Brick by Brick. And one of the factoids Breen picked up when he was writing the book was if you have six Lego pieces with eight studs each, or two by fours in Lego speak, the number of possible ways to fit them together is 915 million. And there are a lot of Lego geeks, so I, I sort of trust their math on that. But just think about that for a minute. That one brick can yield so much creativity, yet it's a tightly bound product, a tightly bound piece of plastic. Would kids really innovate inside the brick? And we're all often um, encouraged to think outside the box, but Lego was very successful by innovating within the box, by understanding its boundaries. If you listen to the first two episodes in our mini-series, you know that what we're trying to do is get under the hoods of the companies we're calling persistent innovators. These are companies that never settle into complacency about their existing product lines. Instead, they have the curiosity and boldness to keep reinventing themselves, decade after decade. We want to know how they do it. There's got to be some combination of leadership, culture, insight, skill, and luck that keeps these companies focused and helps them pick themselves up after the occasional stumble. That's what we're looking to understand. And it strikes me that if you compare Lego with the companies we've already talked about, namely Apple and Disney, they all have at least one thing in common. It's that all these companies have an identity that's grounded in the physical things they make, but they also have a belief system about why and how those things should be made. So Apple makes laptops, phones, and other computing devices. But Apple believes that those devices should help its customers be more creative, and that, therefore, they should be beautifully designed and easy to use. Disney makes stories in the form of animated features, live-action movies, TV shows, and theme park rides. 
but Disney believes that those stories should speak to the hopes and dreams of average people, and that there's always room to use technology to make those stories more compelling. So what about Lego? Well, Lego makes little bricks out of a form of injection-molded plastic called acrylonitrile butadiene styrene, or ABS. But Lego believes that these bricks can unlock endless play and creativity. It's right there in the name Lego. It's a contraction of the Danish phrase goat, which means play well. Lego sees itself not just as a manufacturer of construction toys, but as a facilitator of learning and exploration for kids everywhere, and even for some adults. As we dive into the history of Lego over the past 30 years or so, I think the story is going to drive home a lesson that started to peek through in our previous episodes. We saw how even persistent innovators like Apple and Disney can go through dry spells or creative crises when it seems like they've lost their way. And I have a hunch that when this happens, it's usually because what the company makes and what the company believes have drifted out of alignment. Part of our story today is about a slice of Lego's history from the late 1990s into the early 2000s, when the company made a drastic pivot away from the bricks and the classic Lego system of play. That pivot brought Lego to the very edge of bankruptcy in 2003. Lego stepped back from the brink thanks to new leaders who saw what was wrong and were smart enough to refocus on the basics. They made sure Lego's products were actually consistent with Lego's original philosophy about play. They innovated inside the box. And ever since then, Lego has been on a path of steady growth. The pivot and the pullback are the stories that Bill Breen and David Robertson told in Brick by Brick. Today, Breen is going to retell parts of it for us. And we'll also hear from two former Lego executives about how the company rediscovered its purpose. But before that, a word about our sponsor. The Persistent Innovators is sponsored by PatSnap, the connected innovation intelligence company, and their online courseware site, Innovation Academy. Coming up in the final episode of the series in two weeks, I'll talk with Sam Wiley, head of thought leadership and customer advocacy at PatSnap, about how the company can help innovative organizations understand the R&D and intellectual property landscapes in their fields. And I'll ask Sam how he sees the challenges of persistent innovation. But for now, I just want to say thank you to PatSnap for their support throughout the miniseries. You can learn more at www.patsnap.com and academy.patsnap.com. Around 2009, Bill Breen got a call from a book agent. This agent knew that Breen had been on the founding team at Fast Company and that he'd started a series for the magazine called Masters of Design. And she explained that she had a client named David Robertson, who was a business professor at IMD in Switzerland. Robertson had written a case study about the troubles at Lego in the early 2000s. And now he was looking for a writing partner who could help him turn the idea into a book. Breen was intrigued. There are several things that attracted me, but first of all, Lego is such a great brand. It is also a brand that a lot of people know about, but they really don't know the company behind it. Because it's privately held, you know, of course, Wall Street doesn't follow it. 
there, there have been some pieces written about it. Of course, the, the toy industry trade writes about and follows it. Um, my colleague, Charles Fishman at Fast Company did an article about Lego, but there hadn't really been a significant piece of work done on the company that stands behind this beloved um, toy. And, and that to me was, was just amazing because since the brick, you know, the, the Lego brick was patented in 1958, Lego had decades of unbroken sales growth. It was a sales and profit machine. And then starting in the late 1990s, it hit a real plateau and then it spiraled. And the family that owns the company almost lost control of it. It got so bad that Lego was almost broken up into pieces and sold off. So that is a a beloved brand that has this amazing sort of transformation or turnaround story behind it and also you know there was the part that you know speaks to innovation both product innovation in terms of what lego did with its product innovation to become lego and also within its management systems that it had to do to reinvent itself in order to transform itself into a company that really was fit for the 21st century and so all of those things really combined to, um, to pique my interest in, in this project, even though I only really knew Lego from stepping on it barefoot when my kids were playing on it with it. Lego ouch. Despite the agony of the ouch, Breen took on the book project. And over the next couple of years, he and Robertson made several pilgrimages to Billund. That's the little town three hours west of Copenhagen, where Lego was founded in 1932, and where it's still based today. Arriving in Billund, I I will say, was a little bit shocking. There's the Legoland Hotel, and of course, the the biggest features of the whole um, townscape are are the Legoland theme park with the the castle turrets. But it's, it's small. The town looks like a little Lego streetscape with all these, you know, the houses are all basically the same and they look all look very orderly. And then there's the Lego headquarters there, which is very colorful, as you would imagine. And so the contrast between just the brand's name and the size of the town was just kind of stunning. And then, of course, on the outskirts are all the factories that churn out millions and millions of bricks every year and they are very impressive they're like airline you know hangers i mean they're just gigantic and you've got to take a cart so to speak these powered scooters and stuff to get around them because it's just so so big and, and they're so sprawling once breen and robertson arrived in billand something happened to them that i've got to tell you speaking as a fellow journalist almost never happens lego's executives knew that after the missteps of the early 2000s the company had barely escaped destruction. And rather than clamming up out of fear or embarrassment, they actually wanted to talk about it. At the point at which we started this this work on this book, Lego had already done the turnaround. It was quite successful at that point. And yet the scars were very fresh from what it had endured. And uh, I think they wanted to really capture that and chronicle it so that it would be kind of a warning to future years, you know, the future of Lego to try to avoid something like this at all costs. So what had actually gone wrong at Lego? Well, to understand that, first, you need to know a little more about what had been going right at Lego for decades before the crisis hit. 
The story of the Lego we know today really starts in the late 1950s. The brick just didn't magically happen overnight. I think there was a lot of persistence and grit around that, starting with the fact that they did a lot of experiments and, and when they would click the two bricks together, it used to sort of just spring apart. It wouldn't click. The thing that really brings it together, they call it clutch power. That's what uh, Lego calls it. And it's that clicking feeling that you get, which is very satisfying, but it's also the tug that you feel when you pull it apart. And that's that tangible thing that it was just a, such a turn on for kids. And it was such a great invention. And the second great invention is um, this insight that Lego had of creating a system of play, a holistic system with the brick as the centerpiece. So um, the genius of the brick is partly that Lego long before software came into being figured out backward compatibility. So a brick from a new Lego set would work with a brick from a set of five years. It was endlessly playable. And what also meant it was endlessly profitable. In the early 2000s, they cost around $50,000 to make a molding machine. When, but when you spread that across millions and millions of brick, that bricks, that almost amounts to zero. And so it was this notion of backward compatibility and the idea of a system of play where it just wasn't a one-off product, but that it was a holistic system that you could build out from the brick. And I think those two things really sort of powered Lego and, and its sales. But there's also a third thing, and that gets back to the point I was trying to make about innovating inside the brick or thinking inside the box. And that is the sort of discipline that Lego brought to this. So there's endless creative possibilities within playing within the brick itself. But Lego was very disciplined about um, its protecting its system of play and not letting it get um, too out of hand. Lego was owned by, by three generations of, of leaders and three generations of leaders. And the second generation owner, Gottfried, the CEO, would personally review every new Lego kit to ensure that there was a limited number of colors and there were a limited number of, of shapes so that there wasn't too much expansion and the system would be itself tightly bounded. The Gottfried that Breen is talking about was Gottfried Christensen, the son of Lego's founder, Ola Kirk Christensen. It was on Gottfried's watch that Lego had discovered how to make ABS bricks with high clutch power in the 1950s, and then went on to develop the whole Lego system of play in the 1960s. In 1979, the presidency of the company passed to Gottfried's son, Kjeld Kirk Christensen, and Kjeld added something important of his own. He came up with a, probably um, Lego's, certainly Lego's third greatest in innovation, which is the minifig, the minifigures. And that too was uh, the product of a lot of experimentation. The first minifigs didn't have any faces. <laughs> and, uh, and, and even if you, you probably can go back and, and look at the original minifigs, they just had these sort of coal black eyes and smiles and, and, and that was it. But they eventually brought in um, variations on that with uh, all kinds of you know, vampires and weightlifters and cheerleaders and all different kinds of expressions. But that many, those minifigs brought in this notion of um, storytelling that kids could do with the sets. And so Lego expanded from just simply 
creating, you know, street scenes or tractors or gas stations or whatever, or fire trucks to also telling stories around all those. And so that storytelling and narrative really also drove its sales as well. And Lego retained that discipline until we get to almost the late 1990s. One thing to understand is that by 1988, the last of Lego's patents on the interlocking brick concept had expired. And suddenly there were lots of toy companies around the world making knockoff construction toys. Up to that point, Lego had been growing its sales at double-digit rates every year. But between 1988 and 1993, sales leveled off and profits went into freefall. That led to a period of what you might call frantic experimentation. Between 1994 and 1998, the company brought out at least 30 new product lines. Almost all of them were expensive failures. And in 1998, for the first time in its history, the company started losing money. Inside Lego, there was a theory about what was going wrong. This is when digital gaming really came to the fore. We're talking about the late 1990s here. The humble brick wasn't so cool anymore. New competitors were coming up like LeapFrog. And there was also this notion for the American market that American kids just didn't want to put a lot of time into building stuff. They were too time squeezed, too, time was too compressed, and they had a lot of other distractions. Lego was willing to try almost anything to become competitive again in this changing market. So Kjeld, the grandson of the founder, voluntarily stepped aside as CEO. And for the first time, Lego brought in a leader from outside the Christensen family. The new CEO doubled down on the product experimentation strategy, and he ended up pushing Lego to build some products that were, to put it charitably, very un-Lego-like. The gentleman's name was Paul Plowman, the CEO. They brought him in to sort of try to turn around the organization. And I'm very leery of doing sort of Monday morning quarterbacking, which a lot of business books tend to do, which is to look back and say all the things they did wrong and everything. And I really try to put myself in his shoes. So he was incentivized to innovate. Uh, his bonus structure was built around that. That was his charter to innovate very quickly and to bring them back to profitable and double the sales growth. And he had very ambitious targets. And so they tried a lot of, of things and both product-wise in terms of launching a lot of products that were radically redesigned. Some of them didn't even have the brick as part of them. And a lot of sort of expensive ventures as well, they invested heavily in launching new Legoland theme parks. Their ambition was to create one or two every year to try to create 300 Lego stores. Uh, another thing they did was they had this beloved sub-brand for preschoolers called Duplo. And it was a powerhouse for, for Lego. And they did away with that brand and created something called Lego Explore. Uh, some of which, some of those lines of those toys had nothing to do with the brick at all. They looked more like something out of Fisher-Price. One thing that Breen and Robertson make clear in the book is that Plowman wasn't being reckless. He was actually doing all the things that business schools teach leaders to do. He was bringing in lots of new people from diverse backgrounds to foster more creativity. He was exploring blue ocean markets and trying to extend the Lego brand into new kinds of play experiences. He greenlighted entirely non-brick-related toys, like the Galador action figures, which the company promoted through a live-action TV series for kids called Galador, Defenders of the Outer Dimension. What's going on? I don't know. I've sealed us up. Something is attacking us. 
Plowman was willing to get behind innovations like a Galador video game for the Game Boy Advance that would potentially disrupt Lego's traditional business selling physical toys. The problem, as Breen sees it, was that Plowman was in such a rush to return the company to profitability that he tried to do all of these things at once. They were a very busy company, but I don't know if it made for, for great business. And the result was sort of runaway, to a certain degree, uncontrolled innovation. Now, there was one thing that did go right very early in Plowman's tenure. A couple of years before Plowman took over, Christensen had okayed a licensing deal with Lucasfilm to create Lego Star Wars, a line of Lego kits based on the spaceships and characters in the movies. In 1999, the studio released the first Star Wars prequel film, The Phantom Menace. The Lego Star Wars kits came out at the same time, and they were an instant and massive hit with kids. They outpaced Lego's own sales forecasts by 500%. Then the company repeated that success with a line of Harry Potter kits starting in 2001. But those successes turned out to be both a blessing and a curse. The revenue from the movie tie-in kits was so extravagant that it wound up masking the fact that most of Plowman's other experiments were backfiring. Some of the products that they came out with, if they had just taken some more time with them and thought them through some more and tested more rigorously, they might have had successes with them. Some of them just were not suitable at all for, for the market. And so what happened was they alienated a lot of the kids who really loved to build. This is the company's crown jewel. This is the brick and what you can do with the brick. And when they struggled, it was because they somehow tried to modify this crown jewel and tried to make this crown jewel something different. This is Robert Rasmussen. He was at Lego in the 1980s and 1990s. And today he runs a training practice called Lego Serious Play. And we're going to hear more from him toward the end of the episode. But I want to bring him in here because he makes an important point. Rasmussen thinks the main thing Lego forgot during the Plowman years is that playing with Lego bricks is supposed to be fun, but it's also supposed to be a little bit hard. I don't know if you are familiar with a concept called Snap. They created a new construction system. Because the whole thing was that we need to make it faster for children to build. It was a disaster, right? And they also created a, an action figure called Galidor. It was terrible, right? And part of the point, and, and, and this is what came back also to Seymour Papert and, and his concept of hard fun. Things are more enjoyable and more learning with when they're adequately difficult. Things are not fun if they're too easy, but, and if it's too hard, it's not fun either. So, so finding this, this balance between, you know, it's not too easy, not too difficult, which is Seymour called hard fun. It's fun because it is hard. This, this is what you kind of lost touch of. By 2003, the magnitude of Lego's mistakes was clear. New toy lines like Explore and Galador were complete flops, leaving angry retailers with lots of unsold stock. The crash project to build new theme parks and open hundreds of new retail stores had left the company's cash reserves drained. And in 2003, there was no new Star Wars film or Harry Potter film, so there was no movie tie-in revenue to prop up everything else. It was like that moment in a Roadrunner cartoon where Wile E. Coyote runs halfway across a chasm and then realizes there's nothing below to hold him up. But throughout Plowman's years as CEO, Kild Kirk Christensen had remained president of Lego. 
And in 2001, he'd made a key decision that turned out to be part of the company's salvation. He had hired a former McKinsey consultant named Jorgen Wieg Knudstorp to advise on strategy setting. And right here, I just want to request a blanket pardon for slaughtering the pronunciations of all of the Danish names in this episode. But anyway, Knudstorp's job as head of strategic development gave him a perch where he could see all the problems Lego was running into. And in 2003, as all of the key indicators at Lego were heading south, Christensen asked Knudstorp to figure things out and present a plan to the board. Basically, his message to the board was when he crunched all the numbers and figured out what Lego was doing and wasn't doing and everything else, uh, told them we are on a burning platform. We might not make it through next year. And of course, the board was horrified to hear that. A lot of them didn't even believe it. And um, Jorgen did say to us that um, he walked out of that meeting thinking his, his future at Lego might be over. <laughs> but then they brought in a, a very experienced uh, CFO to also look at the numbers. And, and after he got done with them, it was really irrefutable. Lego was in a very, very bad way and was was heading towards very dire straits if it didn't find a way to sort of rescue itself. So what was Lego's rescue plan? Well, it was to fire Plowman and make Knudstorp himself the CEO so that he could begin the turnaround from the turnaround. Bill, I think your final chapter sums it all up in a really fun way where you're kind of using this um, rocket ship analogy. <laughs> Like he, he, when he came on board, uh, he was on, on, a, on a flaming rocket ship that was going down and they kind of had to rebuild it in the air, right? So, so what wound up being the sort of the winning set of strategies that helped to turn around this situation and bring back financial stability and then restore Lego to its um, heritage really of, of being a truly innovative company that was actually uh, continuing to kind of come up with cool new toys every year? I think the first thing was and I'm talking about the survival stage initially, was to bring focus back to the company and to break that self-satisfied core, even though the company was in really dire straits, there was still this, this culture of very self-satisfied culture that we know best, we know how to design for kids. We've been doing this for, for decades and we've just hit a rough patch. There was no sense of, of the idea that, yeah, we wanna value creativity, but also profitability. And so what they initially did was they created a 13.5% sales target. In other words, you know, no matter what, whether it's, an, if it's a new product that you're proposing or if we're looking at an existing line, it had to demonstrate a return on sales that would meet or surpass 13.5%. And that brought focus to the managers of the design teams, uh, that number. The other thing they did to restore a sense of discipline was they had this this thing called a design lab. And that they, they were a, um, a group of very experienced veteran Lego designers that did what Godfrey did back in the 1950s and 60s, which was review every single element in their inventory. And elements uh, are, are the unique pieces of, of Lego, whether it's a two by two or Indiana Jones's whip. It's those special, anything outside of brick that's a special color or design or different. And they found that um, when they were doing the review that the number of elements had spiraled up to 14,000. <laughs> there are 14,000 elements in their inventory. And the elements are very expensive to produce. You have to get an injection molding machine for each one of those. 
eight different minifig policemen, six different chefs, et cetera. So they really culled that. So there was this process of, you know, when I think about it, it's this, this idea of bringing discipline to creativity. And that I think will be a sort of a recurring theme. They try to carry that over into, into other areas as well, becoming customer driven once again, really understanding, deeply understanding your customer. And that's become quite such a cliche. But remember that Lego had lost sight of its core customer. It was chasing during the late 1990s and early 2000s, it was chasing the customer that sort of abandoned it. The kids were fascinated by digital games, et cetera. And, um, and so they did things which were sort of unheard of for Lego at the time, which is the CEO and the founder going out and meeting face-to-face with kids and also adult fans of Lego, which Lego had always sort of kind of put down um, because of they only, adult fans only accounted for about 5% of the company's market by the early 2000s. And yet those adult fans also outspent the average family by 20 to 1. So they were well, the adult fans that also turned on Lego because of the dumbed down products that Lego was coming out with. So they merely made a lot of efforts to get back and try to reconnect with those adult fans, including taking for Lego, which was quite an unheard of step at the time, actually starting to crowdsource ideas from Lego fans. Another thing, I, I think it was really funny that Lego did a, a survey of its, of its customers. And one of the encouraging things that it found during those days was that Lego kids were quote unquote normal. I mean, there was this worry that, that Lego kids were geeks and there were very few of them. <laughs> and, and, um, and they found that, yeah, you know, Lego kids like to build a little bit more. Uh, they like to read a few more books than the average kids, but they love music. They loved um, sports. And importantly, they also love digital games as well. It wasn't an either or thing. In other words, Lego was learning that some of its fears about the changing desires of kids were overblown. Just because electronic toys and video games were on the rise didn't mean that kids had stopped wanting to build stuff with their hands. And all of that validated Knutstorp's driving instinct that Lego needed to get back to the basics. Here's Knutstorp speaking with an interviewer from BCG in 2017. The company was struggling because it did too many things at the same time. So it lost its focus and its sense of its core and what the capabilities were in that core. What was it really that this company did better than anybody else? And that really came down to a few things like creating this unique material that acts as if it was glued and yet is very easy to take apart. The company decided to bring back beloved old product lines like Lego City, and they killed off a bunch of toys that weren't authentic to the brand. They repaired their relationships with retailers, and they got a lot more disciplined about which new ideas they would pursue. And as Steve Jobs famously said, you know, innovation is saying no to a thousand ideas, a thousand different ideas. And Lego has really exhibited this as well. I think where Lego got into trouble was it was trying to pursue and chase a lot of ideas all at once rather than figuring out a sequencing and a cadence to ideas, which is really important. So the long and the short of it is really, it's this combination of building the core out, understanding the sequencing and cadence for innovations. And then once you build that back, that basic business, then trying sort of the experiments so that you can winnow down a few things, experiments that are worth investing in, and then figuring out whether any of those are actually going to turn out to the hit that you're hoping for. By 2006, the crisis was mostly over, and Lego had begun to reestablish itself as the world's hottest toy company. 
Between 2007 and 2011, the company grew at an average rate of 24% per year, compared to just 1%, 2 or 3% per year for competitors like Mattel and Hasbro. And the rocket ship ride continued throughout the 2010s, boosted by Lego's hugely successful foray into Hollywood with the Lego Movie in 2014, the Lego Batman Movie in 2017, and the Lego Movie 2, the second part, in 2019. And in a way, everything is still awesome at Lego, at least compared to 2003. But the truth is the company has worked pretty hard to make sure it stays that way. It wasn't just that they made sure that the whole story of the company's crisis and recovery came out in brick by brick. They also set up some new structures to help the company be more disciplined about innovation. I learned about that phase of Lego's history from David Graham, Today, Graham runs a consulting company based in Copenhagen called Diplomatic Rebels. And from 2010 to 2019, he was at Lego in a part of the company called the Future Lab, later renamed the Creative Play Lab. And, and so where I came into the company in 2010 was a time where um, now the company has really sort of become good at the existing business, managing that really, really well. Now it was start time again to start exploring new territory, but without losing focus on the existing core business. So the challenge here was really to, how do we both explore new territory, let's say for instance, digitalization, and, and adopt new technologies and new type of experiences, but without leaving what is absolutely the core essence of, of the, the company, both in terms of its DNA and values, but also in terms of what their competencies are, you know, what they're really good at. At the Future Lab, Graham worked on pilot projects, like, for example, a hybrid physical digital game. It involved building with real Lego bricks and then scanning the bricks into a virtual environment on a smartphone or a computer. Graham says the lab worked sort of like a tech startup in the sense that the mission was to generate and test lots of new product ideas without spending too much time or too much money. But the big difference was that the Future Lab wasn't trying to disrupt LEGO's existing business. If anything, it was just the opposite. Graham says the lab was always trying to find the right balance between exploring new concepts and building on LEGO's foundation in the bricks and the system of play. I think most companies that have a Future Lab or an Innovation Lab or a Skunk Works or an R&D division, they sort of expect those divisions to be um, irritants to be um, always agitating for change and experimentation. And, um, and you're saying that that's not the only role. You're saying uh, that those divisions, I think, can be even more effective if they are also aware of the legacy, the core business, the, the core commitments, and, and that they figure out how to balance the need for innovation and novelty with the need for continuity and respect for the past. Exactly, exactly. It's, it's a huge blind spot, if you ask me. And, and maybe one of the core reasons why so many labs, innovation labs and units get shut down again, because either they end up moving too far away from the existing core, they get alienated um, and, and they you know, perceive to be uh, too far removed from what's going on, what's strategically important, and too far removed from the existing culture of the company and um, and so they get shut down or they end up 
being too close to the sun where they where they sort of ending up just be incremental to the existing coal and, and are not really able to move any boundaries for the company. In Future Lab, we called ourselves legal fundamentalists. And we did that for a reason because we knew that we had to know more about the legacy and the history and, and the values behind the company than anyone else. Because we knew we were going to be constantly challenged on whether we were true to that and how we were true to that. And you can only tell strong stories if you really understand the story. Another interesting thing about the Future Lab was that they didn't really measure their success based on how many of their ideas resulted in actual products. Graham says it was more about building up a kind of muscle memory inside Lego for disciplined innovation. And I've seen labs as well also being closed down because the, the KPIs and the measurement that was put on them was only looking at a, a sort of an end result. The first and foremost that you're doing is creating understanding and insights and data. And then you're creating new capabilities, new competencies that allows for the company more long-term to become really skilled at this. So a lot of the stuff that we would launch did not go directly into becoming billion-dollar businesses for the company. They were rather sort of piloted small. The learning was pulled back. New iterations were created. Insights from those iterations were then shared across the rest of the company that then slowly started to adopt some of those things into their regular core product lines. And, and this is how you create a sort of a solid transformation over many years um, by constantly integrating what you are, what the new stuff you are learning, the new stuff you're understanding into the existing core. So it's back to, you know, you're getting the full super tanker to shift its course and not only a few speedboats that ends up being detached from the mothership. David, I'm wondering whether you can comment on to what extent were you consciously aware that there had been a period of great innovation at Lego that actually perhaps was, was too radical, perhaps because some had forgotten the, the sort of core values of the company uh, and had forgotten how to, how to kind of balance um, radical innovation with being true to the vision. Sure. We, we were extremely aware of this past. And um, also because, uh, you know, initially it was what we were met with most often was that, well, this has already been tried and it nearly brought the company to its death. So, um, so we, we quickly realized that we had to really understand what actually happened in those years and uh, what had been tried and for what reasons. So, um, so, you know, constantly understanding that past, that crisis, and being able to tell the story of why we're now doing things different, why this is not a repeat of the past, and, um, and how the past and what happened really has, has strengthened our approach now and, and our ability to succeed with these things. Eventually, Graham felt like the Future Lab had built this practice of balancing innovation with tradition into a real art form. And in 2019, he decided to go indie and start teaching that art form through his consulting firm, Diplomatic Rebels. What, what is a diplomatic rebel? Uh, how would you describe this as a, as a type of person? Sure, a, a diplomatic rebel, well, it's, 
it's it's a person but more than anything it's a it's a mindset and a methodology um because you can even say a company could become a diplomatic rebel and and so just breaking it down it basically means that you're you know you're mixing the rebel which is you know it, it, which is creativity it is curiosity it is what challenges status quo you know it's the people asking the difficult questions in the meetings you know why are we doing this and why are we not looking at this you're mixing that with the skills of the diplomat which is basically having empathy and understanding uh towards the existing system why is it acting the way that it is why were things built the way that it was um how to onboard people to new realities and making sure that everyone eventually is pulled towards this new direction and um and and you need to find balance between those two both as an individual if you want to succeed as an entrepreneur you you have to manage that but also it's back to the ambidexterity of the company having to both manage the existing business and discipline while at the same time being creative and exploring new territory when Graham teaches the method to executives or their companies, he always emphasizes several principles or habits of diplomatic rebels. Habit number one is to learn resilience, since innovation is always going to provoke some degree of pushback or resistance. The second habit is something that came straight out of the history of the crisis at Lego. Point number two, habit number two, they also need to learn how to play by the rules of the existing organization of course they will also be breaking a lot of rules but they need to only break the ones that is absolutely necessary and then they need to show a great respect towards that those rules were there for a reason but now we have to do things differently for these other reasons and they have to be very good at telling that story we talked earlier about the frenzy of experimentation at lego from the mid 90s through the end of the plowman years the main problem with that style of innovation at least through the lens of the diplomatic rebels theory, was that product developers at Lego were taking big risks and breaking all of the rules all at once, often for reasons that seemed willy-nilly. But Graham thinks the company learned its lesson. I believe that a, a number of the executives at Lego have been, you know, through the years, really, really good at cultivating this balance, you know, between the rebel and the diplomat, between the discipline and creativity and having a playful culture. Now, that idea of a playful culture leads to one last question that we haven't really talked about yet. And that's the huge influence Lego has had on the way all of us think about creativity. Not just kids, and not just adult fans of Lego, but even businesses. Earlier, we met Robert Rasmussen. He joined Lego in 1988 as director of R&D for Lego Education. And he led the team that developed the educational curriculum behind the Lego Mindstorms series of programmable robots. And Rasmussen says one day in the early 1990s, Kjeld Kirk Christensen approached him and shared a confession. He had this gut feeling, what if we hit hard times? You know, what if this increasingly sales curve doesn't continue? Remember, these were the years right after Lego's patents on the brick system had expired. Kjeld was worried that the company had gotten lazy and that it wasn't ready to start thinking differently about how to keep growing. In retrospect, of course, we know he was right. But at the time, Kjeld felt like nobody was taking his fears seriously. So he asked Rasmussen to help him explore ways to use Lego bricks themselves to systematically boost creativity inside the company. The, the thinking was from Kjeld, 
Well, if we claim that the bricks are good to get children's imagination going, it should also apply to us, to ourselves, you know, to adults. Rasmussen took on the project. And after a few years of experimenting, he discovered that in at least one way, Lego bricks could make workplaces more effective by functioning as a kind of democratizing force during meetings. Now, let's just acknowledge that most business meetings suck. And that's been true since the beginning of time. Rasmussen thinks it's mainly because of the 2080 problem, meaning 20% of the people in a meeting typically use up 80% of the time. And of course, it's usually the 20% who already hold all the power. So ideas from the other 80% never even get a hearing. Rasmussen discovered that he could eliminate the 2080 problem by dumping a bunch of Lego bricks on the table. He would ask an opening question, and then he would have everyone build their answer. Then he'd go around the table and ask everyone to explain what their brick creation represented. The act of building before talking somehow leveled the playing field. It empowered people from all levels in a hierarchy to speak more openly. I then got a prototype ready and tried it out on my own team. And this was this Eureka moment for me. Wow, this is really, really, really good because the best answers came from the people that never say anything. It came from an administrative assistant, Shannon, and a designer called Alan said, why haven't you ever said these things before? Because this is the best thing we've heard for a long time in this house. Well, you know, I'm never expected to contribute. I'm never expected to, to voice my opinion. I'm never expected to, to give my insight and stuff. That, for me, was this turning moment. Of, Whoa, this is really, really, really good. That insight grew into a whole methodology called Lego Serious Play. Today, Rasmussen is the co-director of the organization Christensen spun off from Lego specifically to teach that approach. It's called the Association of Master Trainers in the Lego Serious Play Method. Rasmussen says the group's training sessions bring in at least 10,000 people around the world every year, including some Lego employees. And naturally, Lego sells sets of bricks specially designed for companies that want to try out the Serious Play Method. The kits include thousands of pieces, and they're expensive. The biggest one costs $790. And they contain such a unique variety of pieces that there's been a funny side effect. The Lego Sales Play products are often out of stock for us facilitators because I think they're bought by many of the adult fans because the Lego Sales Play sets are really, really cool sets. There's a collection of pieces that you cannot get anywhere else. So do you feel like... Killed Kirk Christiansen was correct that there's something fundamental about the value of imagination and creativity and that we can unlock it using these bricks. We ought to be able to apply that philosophy to ourselves here inside Lego and unleash new undiscovered levels of creativity. Do you think he was right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, Kel, Kel has always had this sort of intuitive sense of what of the power of the bricks. And I think my own discovery through the Lego series play has been, been fascinating. And there, there is something about, about our hands and there's something about our desire to make things, which, which seems to be part of our genetic coding and stuff like that. And, and somehow the, the bricks, because of their, um, you know, their systematic, which really gives you freedom. It's the fact that the system that you get the freedom to create so many things really quickly. From your perspective as a former insider, I'm wondering if you feel that Lego in some way f rediscovered the essence of play and 
experimentation under Knutsdorp. And, and that, that's part of the reason the company has had such a successful sort of comeback. Oh, totally. Because what Jürgen B, he installed faith in the brick. Prior to that, the, the, there was this doubt in the, in the executive that Lego could not survive in the future by just being a brick company. He totally installed faith. We make the crown jewel and the crown jewel is a brick and we will survive and we will, we will prosper by focusing on the brick. Then we'll get all of these other people like Disney and others to make movies, to like cartoons and so that it'll be even more enjoyable to play with the brick. He installed that fundamental faith in the entire organization, which I think is really, really critical to what happened. We've got one more episode coming up in the miniseries, and it's about the Swiss pharmaceutical giant Novartis. But if we want to step back and start asking what we've learned, I think we can already see a few themes emerging. First off, there really is such a thing as a persistently innovative company. Growing up, getting big, and even getting old as a company doesn't have to mean that you stop reinventing yourself. But there are almost always going to be rough patches, the companies we've chronicled all weathered their crises in different ways. But in all three cases, they had to find ways to bring their businesses back into alignment with their founding philosophies. Apple got off track because during the years when Steve Jobs was away, the company stopped paying attention to its core customers, the creatives. Management turned into an old boys club, and it focused on squeezing more profits out of existing product lines. When Jobs came back, he blew all that up, he brought in new people and built new structures that set the stage for Apple to re-enchant its customers through big leaps in technology and design. The story at Disney was a little different. In the 1990s and 2000s, they could see that computer graphics technology was changing what audiences expected from animated films. And they could see that wireless technology was changing the way guests could experience the theme parks but it ended up taking the company a really long time to figure out how to absorb those new technologies and use them in a way that felt distinctively Disney. In a way, Disney had to remember that it wasn't just a storytelling company or just a technology company. It was both, and it had been from the beginning. Lego got into trouble when it forgot that kids don't just want to be entertained, they want to be challenged. A Lego brick isn't just a hunk of ABS plastic. It's a thing you invent with. And when the company went back to thinking inside the box, that's when everything finally started clicking again. The Persistent Innovators is a mini-series from Innovation Answered, InnoLead's podcast for corporate changemakers. It's written and produced by me, Wade Rausch, and edited by Scott Kirstner. Music in this episode by Lee Rosevier. I'd like to thank Kristen Krasinskis and Colin Robichaud over at InnoLead for all their help. A special thank you to our sponsor, PatSnap, and to my guests, Robert Rasmussen, David Graham, and Bill Breen. I'll see you in two weeks for our fourth and final episode. Until then, stay safe and thanks for listening.